everyone. It's your host here, Marcel. Last week, we hosted Letitia James and talked about an amazing online pleasure education tool known as O-School. It's intentional, fun, and you should check them out and check out Letitia in Chapter 1, Part 2. In Chapter 1, I noticed that youth came up a lot in the discussion, and I kind of began to wonder to myself, what would it look like if we could socialize youth from a health equity and social justice perspective at a young age? What if we didn't have to get people to unlearn stigma and misinformation by getting them not to even learn it in the first place? This week, I'll venture to answer those questions. This week, we'll be joined by Inosanto Nagara, an activist and children's book author who makes it a point to teach youth the pillars of equity from a young age. So we'll be sitting down to discuss how we got there. Enjoy, and I'll see you all at the end of the episode. Hello, everyone. Welcome to Defining Equity, a show meant to center and celebrate those living at the margins. Today, we're going to be having a conversation about youth socialization and the importance of an early understanding of social justice. So today, we're joined by Inosanto Nagara, a graphic designer by trade, but also a children's book author. Inosanto has written the acclaimed titles A is for Activists, Counting on Community, and My Night in the Planetarium, all of which are books that are entertaining, interesting, age-appropriate, and work to give children a language and understanding of the principles of equity and social justice. So without further ado, Inosanto, everyone. How are you doing today? Good. How are you? Thanks for having me. Of course, of course. <laughs> I'm doing good. Thank you so much for coming. So I guess just to, like to start off, would you mind just like telling us a little bit about yourself? So, you know, we, we know your name, which is good. Um, <laughs> but also just sort of like, you know, a little bit about, I guess, your job title, where you live, your age, if you if you like, um, and any other sort of quick facts. Well, yeah, you have my name. My name's Eno. I go by Eno. I am a graphic designer with Design Action Collective, which is a worker-owned co-op union design studio in Oakland, California. I was born and raised in Jakarta, Indonesia. I moved here in 1988 to go to college and then ended up staying. And I'm now 46, going on 47. Mm-hmm. And I have Almost seven-year-old. Son. Got you. What's the name of your seven-year-old? His name is Arif. Arif, awesome, awesome. Yeah. What's he like? What's his personality? <laughs> oh, he's he's a he's a nut. He's, he's mm-hmm. a lot of fun. He's it's one of these kids who has a lot of energy. Really likes to move a lot and play a lot and clown around a lot. And it's interesting for me because a children's book writer because you know he's at this stage not a particularly bookish kind of a kid he was very physical mm-hmm. and so i often gauge my writing to kids with slightly less patience because gotcha. of them probably <laughs> that is real that is real awesome well i guess before we go into some more detail about the books you've written would you mind just giving us a little bit more detail about you the person. So just describe a little who you were as a kid. Tell us a little bit more about growing up, like what your family was like, any hobbies you had, things like that. Just like a little bit of a backdrop. Sure. Yeah, I was born and raised in Jakarta, Indonesia. It's a big city. And my mother is American. She sort of came out of the civil rights movement in the 60s and had been involved in, in activism around that and also against the Vietnam War. And my father is a 
poet playwright who was doing dissident play writing and um, performing in the early 70s in Indonesia. Um, so I kind of grew up in a world of very sort of artistic and literary people who were very socially engaged. Mm-hmm. You know, so that was sort of my family. I, you know, I myself was just like every other kid lived an hour away from school so I sort of had my school friends and my my home friends you know I was really into outdoors stuff in high school in particular very serious about rock climbing (laughs) (laughs) you know so you know I've worn many hats through the years and then I ended up coming to the United States to study zoology Mm -hmm. and got involved with activism here got involved with the anti-war movement against the first Gulf War and found myself doing a lot of graphic design work you know I'd do the newsletters and that kind of thing for our our organizations and photography just because that's what came easy for me even though my sort of academic interest was natural sciences I ended up you know spending most of my free time doing graphic design and activism Mm -hmm. so that's that kind of brings me to adulthood. <laughs> mm-hmm. Do you want me to keep going or <laughs> um, whatever? Whatever makes you feel the most like you. <laughs> well, I guess just the the trajectory from there was post college. I moved to San Francisco Bay Area, where I continued to do the graphic design for activist groups work, and found myself able to do that full time through working at Inkworks Press, a worker on collective union print shop that was founded in the early 70s. Mm. I was had a lot of mentors from people who came out of that movement and the anti-Vietnam War movement and people who had been involved with the Panthers and the American Indian movement and the feminist movement of the time. So I mm. learned a lot working there. And then we finally decided to spin off Design Action, mm. which is where I am now. And we now have 13 people. We do graphic design, web development, and all other sorts of design for activist groups. Got you. Awesome. Cool. Well, just to transition a little bit. So, you know, before we really dive into sort of, I guess, the meat of these interviews, I always like to do a little bit of an icebreaker. So I have three questions. And if you feel empowered to answer all three, that's totally cool. But if you also want to answer one, also totally fine. And so I just want to ask them and then you just choose the one that you want to answer. We can go from there. So the first question is, what was a dream used to have all the time? The second question is, who was your childhood best friend? And the third question is, how would a high school teacher describe you? So again, that's a dream you used to have all the time, childhood best friend, and how would a high school teacher describe you? Got it. Uh, let me, I can talk about my best friends. Mm-hmm. I, I say plural because in some ways I, I never felt like I had just one best friend. I am in my home circles i grew up with two kids is kind of my you know the three of us were kind of a little a little cohort mm-hmm. maman his name was sahru rahman and david Ruiz. Mm-hmm. and what's interesting for me about that looking back is you know maman was he was an orphan from the poorer part of the neighborhood and he was ethnically batawi which is the ethnic group that original people of jakarta and it's a very strong Muslim community and always had always been marginalized in Jakarta as Jakarta grows as a, as a metropolitan city that was the center of Indonesian politics and commerce. Whereas Dafit was from Manado. He was a, the Manadonese people are traditionally Christian. Mm-hmm. His father was a car salesman, so he was a little bit more well to do. 
And so in some ways it was interesting because, you know, with him, with Duffett being, you know, Christian well-to-do kid, myself being kind of in the middle with the intellectual art and culture type family. Mm. And then my friend Maman, who was more from the poorer part of the neighborhood, strong Muslim. But none of this came between us at all. You know, we were we were really tight. And I feel like now I haven't lived in Indonesia now for over 20 years. But, you know, all these divisions between, you know, the if anybody's following what happened with the Chinese Christian governor of Jakarta who mm-hmm. just got ousted and got convicted of blasphemy. And, you know, a lot of that was put on the Batawi people of Jakarta for the underdevelopment that that community is experienced. Looking back, it's interesting how how that was so not an issue for us. Right. That's interesting. So like just, I guess, hanging out with your friends, was it very much something that was accepted or did people kind of look at y'all like, oh, what an interesting group of kids hanging out together? <laughs> yeah, no, not at all. That's the thing. It, was, it wasn't a thing, you know. Oh, it was just, that, that's awesome. You know, it's almost just looking back now that I wonder whether that still exists now, um, given all the ways in which religion and ethnicity has been playing out in Indonesia. Whereas as back in our day, it wasn't even a question, you know, I mean, everybody knew that, you know, everybody would have their own sort of cultural pride. You know, my friends at school all came from different parts of Indonesia as well. And my own family has its own sort of complicated history with my father, who sees himself as Balinese as he was born and raised in Bali, but he comes from a Muslim enclave in Bali. And so, you know, it's a little different from what most people think of as Balinese Mm. culturally, you know, and then I was half American, you know, so, you know, we were all, we were all from different places and we all were various mixes and we all, we all hung out. (laughs) Gosh, that's awesome. That's awesome. I can definitely sort of reflect in my own childhood. And I think that in a lot of ways, there was definitely some parallels and that I definitely grew up with a lot of folks who like racially, religiously, sexually, etc, just had very different identities from the ones that I had. But it's interesting looking back, because it's like, on one end, when you're a kid, like in a lot of ways, you can be sort of like, more innocent when it comes to those issues and don't have as much of a layered understanding. But at the same time, it seemed like there just wasn't as much to worry about at that age. But I guess that's just a little bit of childhood just in general. Yeah. And I I think, and I don't want to sound like, you know, we're just sort of, there was this glorious time when everybody all got along and now nobody does. Right. (laughs) But I feel like it was an ideal for people to get along amongst, you know, the framework that was created for it. Like none of the grownups brought it up. You know, it was not, you know, like if, if the grownups had wanted to make it a deal, we would have known about it, you know, and, and I think that there is that sort of innocence of youth so the kids don't you know we just do our thing but the context under which we were able to just do our thing was because we were in a place when it wasn't pounded in on us you know right that's real that's real well thank you so much for sharing that Thank you for sharing that. So now we're, I guess, just going to transition a little bit and talk a bit more about your storytelling. So, you know, like I mentioned a little bit earlier, you're most known for your three books, A is for Activists, Counting on Community, and My Night in the Planetarium. So just tell us like a little bit about your storytelling, like describe some of those books that you've written so far. Yeah, well, A is for Activists 
is an ABC book. You know, I wrote it when my son was two years old. And the story behind it is basically, you know, we live in a co-housing community with five families. Uh, my son is the youngest of eight. I'd been, you know, the oldest is now graduating high school. So I'd been reading children's books to kids for many, many years. And while many of them are great, and it's really fun reading with kids, some of them you know, reading them over and over again, <laughs> I was uh, ready to hide them under the couch. And we started, you know, I would read these books that our neighbors had given us. Our neighbors are architects. They had this, you know, architecture counting and architecture shapes, you know, and I was, I was like, well, if they're going to have books for, for architects, why can't we have, you know, books that are a book that's about activism? You know, my family, we're all organizers and social justice activists. We should have something that reflects the values that we care about. Right. And so, you know, that's where A is for Activists came about. As soon as the title popped into my head, and I was like, A is for Activists. That's how we'll do it. And I started writing. I sat down with my colleagues at Design Action. We ha were having a retreat one year. And I made a list of A to Z, and everybody sat down and throughout the weekend wrote down different words that they associated, you know, that started with each letter that they associated with social change, social justice activism. Mm -hmm. And then I sat down one May day and started writing A is for Activists. So that one, at first, I was just going to write it for my immediate family. And then I started showing it to other friends. They said they wanted copies, said, well, maybe we should print a couple hundred of them, found out that to print board books, you know, you kind of need to do a few thousand if you're going to print them. And so I took the leap, took out some loans and self-published the first edition of it. And that was, it turns out, there are 3,000 people who were interested in that book and yeah. um and a lot more as it turns out after that so i got hooked up with seven stories press triangle square books for small uh, children who is my publisher now and they took a is for activists to the next level i worked a little bit with Corey silverberg who's wrote sex is a funny word and what makes a baby and he helped me with some of the editing around it and I think that made it just even better than what it was before. And now they've had a lot of success with A is for Activist. So following that, people asked me if I was going to do any of the books. I was like, oh, you know, I didn't get into this, in a, you know, to become a children's book writer per se. And so I said, well, if a good idea comes up, I'm happy to do it, but I'm not going to just do it to do it. And then about a year later, came up with the idea of counting on community. So where A is for activist is about the issues. You know, A is for activist, ally, abolitionist. B is for banner. C is for cooperative. D is for democracy. E is for environmental justice, that kind of thing. Counting on community is more about sort of how we live. You know, it shows block parties, kids sharing things, urban farming, chickens, <laughs> um, you know, that kind of thing. So... Following that, again, people ask me, what, what are you going to do next? And, you know, I was like, well, you know, my kid's growing out of the board book age range, and I'm not so sure if I'm the kind of storyteller that's going to be writing picture books, which is where he would be coming, where my own kid would be next. And, and since my primary motivation still is to write for my own kid, <laughs> I said I wasn't sure. We'll have to think about that. And then one night we're having dinner started telling a story about an incident in my childhood where my father, one of his plays had been very successful, but as a 
critical play against the Suharto regime. Mm-hmm. And we had heard that they were going to come and arrest him and his theater troupe. And I was in the play as a seven-year-old. And I ended up that night, my father and the whole theater troupe escaped out the back door and took off and went into hiding. And mm-hmm. mom and I ended up going to the Jakarta Planetarium to spend the night because we couldn't go home. And so that became the basis for my night in the planetarium. And while it's about that incident, it's really about colonialism, how power corrupts, the importance of free speech and art and resistance and social change. Got you. That's awesome. That's amazing. Thank you for those amazing descriptions. So just out of curiosity, like what's your process like for writing a book? Like how do you get these ideas from like a mere idea to publication? You know, like I said, with the first couple books, it was basically I had a framework for it, you know, ABC book or accounting book and trying to think about how that would pair together with the ideas that I wanted to share. And as for activist, I started out working with other people in my collective to get ideas. I do a lot of this very collaboratively, you know, so I first Mm -hmm. I'll write a first draft First, I'll share it with my kid, you know, I'll make a little mock-up of it and I'll read it to him and see how he reacts. And then I'll probably do a couple more rounds of that. I'll often do little mock-up books with pictures that I just hand draw or use images off the internet that would go with each section to kind of get a feel for how the image and story will go together for the actual kids. And then then I'll run it by other families, other friends, people who work in, you know, teachers, people who work in early childhood development, people who, you know, families who I know share my values but have kids in the right age range. And I'll I'll make little mock-ups and as the book progresses and as the illustrations start to develop i'll make printouts of those with the illustrations and those and then i'll lend them out to the families with a feedback sheet and i try to make sure that the feedback sheet is a way of asking them what the kids so they have a conversation with their kids about uh, what they think because it's really what's most important to me in the this world of children's book publishing where a lot of grown-ups make a lot of decisions about whether books are appropriate or inappropriate or, or make sense or not to kids is I want to get the actual feedback from the kids in the target age range that the book is meant for. Mm-hmm. You know, and every kid's different and not every book is for every kid. And definitely for my books, there's a broader context of the values that the family needs to be, you know, the amount of sharing of values that mm-hmm. uh, you need to sort of have to, as a starting point. If you, you know, disagree that racism is bad, and if you think colonialism was a good thing, then you're probably not going <laughs> to have the, have the right context for reading my books with your right. kids. But you know, for everybody else, that's sort of how I get a sense of how the stories interact. Got you. That makes a lot of sense. So I know that you mentioned that your own child in a lot of ways inspires you to write these stories. I'm just curious, is there like another person or just like another like maybe experience that you had or something like that that inspires you to tell stories? Um, My main motivation for getting into this originally was that I wanted to have these books for my own kid. Mm. And I do my first reading with my kid and I wouldn't write a book that wasn't going to be interesting to my kid. So, you know, that's pretty primary for me. But, you know, now that I'm sort of in this world, 
you know, of children's book writers. I have, you know, an opportunity because I do have a publisher and they're willing to publish my books. And so I have both sort of a, an opportunity and a responsibility, I feel, to, to use this privilege that I have well. And now that I'm doing a lot more, you know, I do school visits and book readings and that kind of thing, I'm seeing a lot more kids and I'm seeing that I have this opportunity to speak with kids directly, especially around, you know, like this last election. My kid is now in first grade and we carpooled to his school with, you know, I do a lot of stuff in the classroom. And so I'm talking to the kids all the time, right? And they, you know, and everybody was worried about Trump getting elected kind of thing. And we're like, like, oh, you know, we're doing our best to make sure that doesn't happen. Don't worry. You know, my kid goes to a dual immersion Spanish speaking school where there's a lot of immigrant kids who, you know, have been hearing this rhetoric, anti-immigrant rhetoric from the Trump campaign. And there's some real concerns about family members being deported and all that kind of thing. And so this is a conversation that they're having. And in some ways, I think a lot of them were being told, well, don't worry about it. He's not going to win. But then when he did win, everybody was devastated and a lot of kids were scared. And so then the conversation becomes about, so what do you do? You know, I grew up under a military dictatorship. Things were not good for a lot of people. And that's part of my story is there is a way to be engaged, to both survive and thrive and resist against repressive regimes. We've done it before, and we want our kids to know that we we have their backs. We can't promise that bad things won't happen. And knowing whether or not kids are exposed to the idea of bad things happening or not is really a function of of what privileges you bring to the table, you know? Right. You can try to shelter your kids from ever knowing these things will ever happen, but who's sheltering, you know, the Syrian refugee kid whose parents were both killed? You know, they, they know right. bad things happen. You know, who's sheltering uh, inner city youth in America who see violence every day? You can't not talk about these things depending on who you are. I feel like rather than have them hear it from TV or make their own assumptions about how much danger they are in themselves, what you want is to have openings to talk about it and do our best to give them the tools to be empowered to feel like they can do something about it. Mm -hmm. That's interesting. Yeah, that definitely resonates a lot. And I'm just, I'm kind of curious because you mentioned that, you know, depending on like what, I guess, what perspective you bring to the table, what privileges you bring to the table, books like these may or may not resonate. So I'm just curious, have you ever heard any pushback saying that certain like activist themes or social issues that you brought up in your books were perhaps like too mature for children or like something to the effect of that? And if so, like, how did you navigate that? Not so much directly, um, but, you know, I do occasionally browse the Amazon reviews, you know, and <laughs> you definitely get, there's sort of like, it's almost like there's two types of parents, because these are parents who are writing the reviews, you know, there's the people who are like, this is great, I love it, it's a great opportunity and opening to talk to my kids about that stuff. There's people who don't agree with it because they're on the other side of the issues. Right. But I worry less about that. But then there are people who are on our side who have this sort of idea that they need to shelter their kids and, you know, that somehow ABC books need to be about apples and balls and anything Mm -hmm. beyond that is robbing a child of their childhood innocence. So everybody's got to raise their families the way that they feel is right. Mm -hmm. but. 
my main thing is that if you watch a Disney movie, you know, Pixar movies, whatever, you know, their parents get killed all the time. You know, it's like, it's not like in the fantasy world, it's not normalized for stories for children to be about conflict and tension, you know, and it's, it's actually, right. you know, if you go back to traditional stories that come out of European traditions, Indonesian traditions, the, you know, the Bible from, you know, whatever it is, that, you know, <laughs> your, your, your point of reference for what kids have always grown up with, you know, uh, there's not been a time when kids stories and the, the narratives that we share with kids have, have always only been easy, rose colored, nothing bad ever happens kind of things. So I, I feel like people are more, un- are really uncomfortable with this particular framework for it because it's contemporary and deals with real issues. Right. For some reason, that makes it more, more of a discomfort for them than say if it were, you know, monsters and witches that were right. about to eat their kids. You know, there's some pretty horrific things that happen in, in children's stories traditionally. So yeah, my stories by comparison are, are much tamer. Yeah. <laughs> That's interesting. It's interesting you mentioned that because I just reflect on, have you seen Zootopia by any chance? Uh, I haven't seen Zootopia. Okay. I think it is. <laughs> I, I've seen mo- almost all the other books, but somehow or another that one was, was when I think my kid went with another family. Got you. Okay, well, the moment this interview is over, you should certainly watch it because it is one of the most interesting depictions of racism I've ever seen, like within uh-huh. sort of like a children's movie. And it's it's so it's genius because, you know, on the surface, you could just be like, oh, it's about like bunnies and like foxes and like all these different animals just like kind of living together in this society. But it's very, very obvious that it's talking about mm-hmm. just, you know, just sort of like natural divisions that we have within groups of people and so it's just it really touches on this idea of like discrimination and bias and how and it was interesting because at the very well not to spoil it um I, how do i put this let's see well one of the <laughs> one of okay. the I'm, this is the thing about having a seven-year-old is uh, uh you know I, I end up watching way more of these movies than i ever want to so i, I don't mind if i know what happens <laughs> Fair. okay i won't spoil the total ending but i'll say that one yeah. of the lessons learned was that it, it, like I like that they didn't do the whole oh like you know like technically we're different but we're all really the same like they were like no uh-huh. no like you know a, like a like a rabbit is a rabbit a fox is a fox like they're not the same animal but that doesn't mean that we can't like live together we can't collaborate and we also can't celebrate our differences you know like we don't have mm-hmm. to make it seem like we're the same thing in order to necessarily coalesce so I just think mm-hmm. that, that that just kind of popped into my head as you were talking about that and I'm just like yeah that's really it's really fascinating because when you when you craft like a story in the right way, it can definitely come off. It can kind of do both. It can be sort of entertaining, but also sort of on, underneath the surface or even just on the surface, really teach kids like important lessons that they certainly need to be talking about at a young age. I would agree with that for sure. Yeah. And I think a lot of the, yeah, I mean, the movies out there nowadays, you know, a lot of them, they do tr- have always have an adult layer and then they have a values layer that they put in. I know I don't always agree with kind of the, analysis that <laughs> that they have you know and that's that's part of the problem right and and right and there, there is this way in which people feel like for kids stories you always have to frame it in terms of you know i'm not um dissing Uto- utopia i haven't seen it but you know like it's always about animals or <laughs> you know right and and, and and so it's a metaphor for race but at some point you also got to talk about race you know <laughs> so that's you know that that's the thing that i feel like like is sort of the gap i'm trying to fill with it it's like you know we can talk about these things directly too mm-hmm.
Got you. That's real. And I agree. So I guess just like in a broader sense, like how can storytelling just like in general help us to like reimagine the world that we live in and our own stories that we craft each day? Um, I mean, that's how how we transfer, you know, our histories and our knowledge and our experiences and our values. I think we do have textbooks and they're, you know, I, I have a minor in philosophy and I do believe in straight up tackling the philosophical questions as philosophy. But the way that most of us communicate is around story. One of the, our partners here at Design Action is called the Center for Story Based Strategy. And, you know, and it's true for, for campaign communication as much as it is for how you communicate with your kid that it's not sort of about just conveying facts and here's the textbook you need to read to know right versus wrong kind of thing it's about finding a way to communicate your values ideas and sometimes the complexity of that because there's not always just one answer to each question and part of the part of what a story can provide you with is a framework for something to think about and then you decide yourself where you land right so yeah that's real that's real awesome so what keeps you motivated to keep telling these stories it's cliche but you know a lot of, a lot of it is for me as my kid you know in my work this is what we do you know we we do visual communications for graphic design for activist organizations so we're we're constantly trying to engage in the battle for hearts and minds and that has to do with trying to define the narrative but then you know on the on the children's book level it's really you know i'm having these conversations every day with my kid and all his friends you know and so you know wanting to have a point of reference for them so that as they go out into the world and and tackle their own futures, they've had a chance to think about these things so it doesn't blindside them, you know. And so that's the, for me, the best success is when I feel like some conversation they're having that I'm not a part of and I'm, you know, listening to them and, you know, and they can, they can make reference either to the stories that I've shared with them or other stories that uh, they've heard from other people who, who are doing similar things that, that help them have a framework for their understanding of of the choices that they have to make moving forward. Got you. That's real. And so I guess as we wrap up the storytelling discussion, you know, I work at an organization that centers issues of health equity. And so I'm just curious, like, how would you say your work contributes to that notion of health equity to leading to better health outcomes? The most immediate thing, which is that we do work for organizations that do, you know, harm reduction work or that are, you know, like the Asian Pacific Environmental Network that do environmental justice work. You know, like I think there's, you know, I do graphic design directly for these groups. They are the ones doing the storytelling, the campaigning, the identifying of the problem and the solution and organizing people on the ground to for better policies and against corporate greed and all that kind of thing. So that that's the primary way that I feel like I contribute to them is by supporting organizations. And I have, I have a strong belief in the idea that the way this happens isn't through, you know, somebody like me sitting alone on my computer coming up with ideas that I need to present to the world and somehow that's going to change things. It's through community organizing 
you know, boots on the ground, people who are who are most affected, getting themselves organized. And the thing that I can do is I can and help with visuals and, you know, and communication tools that will help take it to the next level for them. But the, the leadership has to come from the ground up. Mm. You know, these are my kids' books. You know, these are issues that, I, you know, E is for environmental justice, H is for healthy food, you know. Um, right. And so, you know, that's, that's how I sort of insert it into, into my own storytelling. Got you. That's awesome. Well, thank you so much for sharing that. So just kind of like doubling back. One of major pillars of defining equities that you know it's a show that yeah we want to talk about the issues we want to talk about different things but we also want to see you know why people even do the work that they do what kind of even gets them to the table so that's why you know we place such a huge emphasis on learning about who people are outside of the work so kind of going along that same vein what are some things that you're involved in like outside of your storytelling outside of your graphic design like who's you know like outside of those roles it's <laughs> a good question you know i'm Talking to somebody recently, I realized that a lot of my life is built around various forms of creating cooperative infrastructure. You know, I I live in a co-op house that's part of a co-housing community that we built from the ground up with a bunch of families, and we own all the the land and the property together, and we share all that. I work in a worker-owned cooperative. And so everybody here is an owner. We all get equal pay and we all share the decision makings. You know, we may live in a democracy, quote unquote, but the moment you walk into the door of your office, you are in a private tyranny. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, and, you know, that's not the case for us. My main hobby outside of doing this, the work that I do and the kids books and all that stuff is I do martial arts and I, I train at a dojo called Sugetsukan that is also run as a, as a collective <laughs> by the members. So my three main, main areas, my home life, my work life, and my hobby are, are all set up under the, the co-op model. <laughs> I love it. I'm definitely seeing a theme for sure. And so like, what are your, like your guilty pleasures? <laughs> I don't know if I should tell people this, but since it's guilty pleasure, I, I, since I do train martial arts and teach, I actually do occasionally find myself watching a UFC fight. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. Honestly, don't even worry about it. Somewhat, somewhat unbecoming for a children's book writer, I suppose, but. <laughs> right. <laughs> And a peacenik, supposedly. <laughs> that is real. It's. I mean, honestly, don't even worry about it. Like I, the amount of like reality TV trash that I watch, it is honestly, it's it's unfortunate. But also, I mean, <laughs> you gotta you gotta do self care. So hey, whatever. <laughs> but yeah. So I guess just dialing back a little bit to more about you. What's something that you wish more people knew about you? Um. There's not a lot of things that I feel like. Oh, I wish people knew about me per se. <laughs> um. I think the thing that I had actually mentioned earlier, but that maybe a lot of people don't assume about me or don't know about me is that I, my original pursuit and background was in the sciences. And um, I actually 
feel like that informs my approach to social change activism um, in many more ways than people realize. You know, a lot of the people that I end up working with and engaging with either come out of the art world or they come out of the social sciences world, you know, in a sociology or political science or, you know, activism. And there's always been this sort of divide between that and people who are in the sort of natural sciences and physical sciences world. And so I feel like while I ended up not pursuing that as a career, my commitment to the scientific method and understanding our world in a way that doesn't assume that we always are right or that we can't, we shouldn't test out our hypothesis <laughs> against real empirical testable and predictable outcomes, I think has, has always been a, an important part of how I've approached my work. Got you. Awesome. Awesome. So in my night in the planetarium, you talked a lot about sort of like who you were as a child. So just looking back on that person, would you say that the person that you are now, the work that you're doing, your current circumstances, are the person that you envisioned that you would be at around that age? Not at all. (laughs) (laughs) I know I, you know, at, at age seven, you know, I decided it was a couple of years later, I guess, at age 10 is when I decided I was going to become a biologist. So, you know, from there on, I sort of imagined my life. It was going to be like Jane Goodall's. Basically, I was mm-hmm. going to spend most of my time living in the outdoors, you know, amongst animals. The <laughs> you know, instead, I, I now live a very urban existence, mm-hmm. sitting at the computer. And I'm writing children's books and doing activism and martial arts for fun. So, yeah, would not have predicted that. (laughs) (laughs) Fair enough. Fair enough. And if you could go back in time and say something to a younger version of yourself, do you know what that would be? I think the thing that I have gained in terms of wisdom as I've gotten older is an understanding of the need to not worry so much about what other people think. Mm-hmm. Um, and I say that with some trepidation, caution, because it's like, my attitude isn't that, you know, you shouldn't care what anybody thinks. You know, it's actually your understanding of the world and the choices that you make and how they affect other people are very important. And thinking about what you, what choices you make and how they affect people around you as social beings and terms of your responsibility to other people are actually very important. So it's not about not giving a hoot about what people think, but it's but I think that it could get to a point where it can be almost stifling. And mm-hmm. what you learn as you well, what I feel like I learned as I got older is that, that there's a lot of tolerances. <laughs> there's a lot of things that you you know, you can make mistakes, you're gonna make mistakes. And and you'll survive them. And so I think I would have taken the leap on some things a little bit earlier if I wasn't so anxious, I guess. Mm, That is real. Well, honestly, those are all of my questions. Do you have any final words, any other things you want to kind of leave everyone before we wrap it up? I don't really have any deep words of wisdom. Um, I really appreciate <laughs> <That's fine. laughs> uh, you're, you're giving me this platform to just, you know, talk about stuff. And I, I find it, it is really interesting because, you know, I do a lot of sort of interviews about kids books and this kind of thing. And 
I, I feel like a lot of your questions on this stuff sort of went even deeper than than usual, and so it's it's given me a lot of pause to think about these things. So thank you. Thank you. Oh my. Oh. Oh my God. Thank you. Um, yeah, definitely flattered to hear that. Thank you so much. And thank you, you know, for coming on to the show and blessing everyone with this knowledge. Because so I briefly actually used to work in a preschool um, while I was in college. And so that's kind mm-hmm. of what got me interested in children's literature. And I noticed that in some of the books that we read, there was this, like I guess, sort of activist undertone to some of the stories. And I always became, like, I definitely became interested in this idea of, because, you know, we always think about literature as, you know, like, kind of similar to, like, theater or, like, the arts, like, something that we can use culturally to influence ideas and to promote certain things. And so I've always just been curious how we can, how we can fuse that sort of medium with social justice and how to, Um, approach kids with that so to be able to talk to someone who very much does that like and has been very successful with it is honestly an honor so thank you so much for being on the show what's next for you i have another book coming out in october it's Mm -hmm. also from seven stories press triangle square it's called the wedding portrait and this one again it's about an incident and it's about a portrait but really it's about why sometimes we have to break the rules. It's a bit of a history and discussion of civil disobedience and direct action for children. Awesome. Awesome. Well, I can't wait to read it personally, because that sounds amazing. Just out of curiosity, where's the setting of the book? It's built around a photograph of myself and my partner getting married in in front of uh, the Livermore Labs, and we were about to get arrested. <laughs> mm, interesting. Okay, yeah, I, I'm excited. I can't wait. Awesome. Okay, <laughs> be on the look at everybody because I can tell it's gonna be it's gonna be great. Where can we connect with you? How can we find you? Um, you know the the books are available through your local independent bookstore. Um, I I always encourage people to to call their store and uh, you know even if you are somebody who would prefer to just make a call and place an order online or something like that of course you don't get amazon prime free shipping but you know bookstores is such an important resource for how literature and ideas get out there and um, to lose it to these online sellers um, because of the convenience i think is is a serious battle ahead of us so so that's 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 what I would say. You know, the information's all available online. You can, you know, you can look up my my books and I have a website aisforactivist.com where I list projects that I'm working on and that kind of thing, but I would say if if you have the the opportunity at all to go to your local independent bookstore or your library, do that. <laughs> well, thank you so much Inosanto. It's been great talking to you and yeah. Thank you so much again. Thank you. Goodbye, everyone. You just listened to Inosanta Nagara's insight into the world of activism through children's stories. Since the time of the recording, his new book, The Wedding Portrait, has been released in stores. In stores! A riveting tale teaching children about standing up for what's right. The Wedding Portrait shares stories of direct action from around the world that are bookended by Inosanto's wedding story. Definitely check it out, ideally ideally at your local independent bookstore or library. Um, and also be sure to check out his other books and more information about him at asforactivist.com. Lastly, if you have any questions or thoughts on the episode, feel free to get in touch with us at definingequity at gmail.com. 
Next time, we'll be blending some of the themes that have come up by having a conversation about the intersection of art and public health. You won't want to miss this episode. <laughs>